News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It was a moment that many people had been waiting for. The testimony of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford. And the questions were relatively straightforward. Who made the decision not to tell the Prime Minister about 2018 allegations against General Jonathan Vance? Problem is, despite being asked about 10 times by some of the Conservative MPs on the committee, the question didn't really get answered. So what did Telford have to say about the situation and how it's been handled? Well, joining us now for more on that is Global News National Online journalist Amanda Connolly. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So can you give us an idea of what Katie Telford had to say in her testimony? Absolutely. Yeah, this really was a significant testimony. We, of course, have been waiting here in Ottawa for um, a, a while to see if she would testify at all. It was very unclear for a while. When she did appear on Friday, though, before the Defence Committee, we really heard um, kind of a, 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 a at, at times... Um, a little bit unclear and, and certainly raising a number of questions about how this was handled. We, we heard, as you mentioned there off the top, uh, she was asked about 10 times by conservative members to, to kind of clearly say who made this decision not to tell Trudeau. And we really didn't get, um, a clear answer from her on that until the very end of the committee when she was asked by a liberal MP who kind of characterized their own, um, you know, kind of putting forward what, what they thought they were hurting, hearing to her and saying, is this correct? Uh, and Telford said, yes, I think that that's accurate. And what that was, was that uh, the, the sense that we kind of have from this, and again, there was a lot of dancing around here, so I'm kind of being cautious in my wording, was that um, it, it seems to be that Telford and, and folks in the PMO had received advice from Privy Council Office bureaucrats that the bureaucrats were the ones who were best placed to probe this allegation in 2018 against General, General Jonathan Vance. And as a result, um, the the, the Folks in the political side, the, the staff did not look more closely at that. They really left it with the bureaucrats. And of course, we now know the bureaucrats very quickly after that abandoned their probe into the allegation that had been made against General Vance at that time. And so certainly raising a lot of questions at that committee. We did hear from Telford saying, you know, I don't think that we could have done anything more. I don't know what else we could have done. And certainly it, it is kind of reflecting this broader, um, the kind of broader dichotomy here. But you have the, the military sexual misconduct problem itself. And then you have the, the, the questions around the actual political handling of that. And so there remain a lot of open questions on those kind of two, two angles to the story. So, Amanda, then did you get the sense that they were assuming the bureaucrats would look after it? Or did anybody give direction to say, here, we want you to look after this? Yeah, I mean, that kind of seems to be the sense that we were having here, that, that once they were told, you know, that the bureaucrats are going to handle this, that there was kind of a sense that they would just leave it with them and, and let them take care of it. Um, that, that again, of course, being um, part of the issue here is that there, uh, there, there seems to have been a lot of uh, concern expressed that any action by politicians, by ministers would amount to political interference in this. We've heard, of course, from experts at committee, including the commander of the Canadian Forces National Investigation Service, that that would not have been the case, that the minister could have pushed, um, the defense minister could have pushed for more on this, and that would not in and of itself have amounted to political interference. Of course, um, again, still a lot of questions here about what, uh, what was done to handle this back in 2018, what needs to change to uh, ensure that these can be handled more, um, more concretely going forward. So what happens now? Is this the end of the line for looking into this particular situation? 
No, there's certainly quite a lot of work left to do. And again, as I mentioned, the story really kind of has two two lanes to it, right? There's the political angle and there's the actual issue of how do we solve the problem in the military. And the military itself, um, that that problem is the, the, the focus of a large new review being undertaken right now by former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour. She's leading an independent uh, review into the quite broadly kind of the the um, what are the problems in the military as it comes to sexual misconduct? What needs to actually change within the culture of the military to uh, to really root that out? And again, it's it's quite broad in scope. It's looking both at um, to, to what extent does this remain a problem in the military? How do they craft recommendations to set up an, indep- an independent reporting structure for um, complainants to come forward? And also looking at the military police, which is a different part of this and one that we've certainly heard a lot about with regard to questions about whether they're equipped to properly handle sexual misconduct cases. All right. Lots more to come. Amanda, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Amanda Connolly. She's our Global News National Online Journalist, summing up the testimony on Friday. So you might have missed it, right? Because uh, Friday afternoon, very important testimony in front of that House of Commons committee that is looking into who made the decision kind of not to tell the Prime Minister about those 2010, 2018, I should say, allegations against General Jonathan Vance. Uh, and they've been waiting and waiting to hear from the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. That was her testimony on Friday. And as Amanda points out, there is more to come on that story. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's say good morning now to our contributor, Raji Sohal, who sounds like, just like me, she was watching some TV on the weekend. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, we all know that Saturday Night Live is a rite of passage for musicians, for actors, directors, and that sort of thing, but not usually for business leaders. And Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, was on. He was hosting, and he did not pull any punches when he hosted SNL. One of the points that Elon Musk wanted to stress was that he wasn't a regular host. Look, I know I sometimes say or post strange things, but that's just how my brain works. To anyone I've offended, I just want to say, I reinvented electric cars and I'm sending people to Mars in a rocket ship. (laughs) Did you think I was also going to be a chill, normal dude? So, Raji, I was watching this, and I mean, I've watched Saturday Night Live for 40 years. So I've seen a lot of like unusual guests come forward. There's never been anything quite like this. And clearly it sounds like um, the ratings were definitely up because a lot of people wanted to check this out. Yeah, and it, he was really different for a lot of reasons, actually, including that he came out as having Asperger's. That's the first time he's ever talked about having it. Um, in fact, even one of his biographers wasn't aware that he has Asperger's, and he had some um, like physical gestures and movements that showed that, and he just rolled with it. He poked fun at himself. He was self-deprecating. Um, he also made fun of uh, the Dogecoin, which when he oh, tweeted yeah. about it, it went up just hugely and then immediately following the SNL episode it actually went down well he was uh, because he said it was a hustle like so <laughs> which anybody exactly. come on you know it was right like but he just actually admitted it as a joke during weekend update and I couldn't stop laughing because I was like finally somebody said that out loud that is great Completely. And of course, it was uh, the Mother's Day weekend episode as well. So Elon Musk brought his mom on stage with him, which led to some pretty entertaining moments. 
And I'm excited for my Mother's Day gift. I just hope it's not Dogecoin. It is. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> and his mom, of course, is a familiar face to people, too, if they took a good look at her, because she's a, a well-known model. Yeah, she's a, she's a model, and she raised uh, those kids pretty much on her own. And so it, w- it was a nice uh, gesture that they paid a little bit of a tribute by having her on too. Um, but the the whole episode was pretty good. I mean, Elon Musk held his own in, in the skits as well. And it looked like he was having a good time. Yeah, it did look like he was having a good time. There was one that came kind of late in the show. And I'm always curious about the stuff that comes late in the show because they tend to do the kind of wackier stuff there, thinking that, yeah. I don't know, people have gone to bed. Uh, and they did that uh, Mario skit, the Mario um just the characters from Mario being on trial of this. And Elon Musk was like right into it. And I thought, boy, he really does look like he's having a good time. Did you check it out? I did. It's funny that now he's moved well past cult status and he's just mainstream. And he's just one of these really out there characters that we all get to celebrate in culture. Who's not just a celebrity for the sake of it. I mean, he's, He's a pseudo genius, right? Or can we just flat out call him a genius now? I, I think we could probably just call him a genius. And I know that there was some controversy over it too, though, wasn't there? Uh, there, w- there was uh, a little bit of controversy. There was controversy over um, uh, him having uh, mentioned that he had Asperger's, which is a little bit of a surprise for people. Obviously, there was Dogecoin. Oh, we seem to have lost Raji there. Yeah, we'll try to get her back because, yeah, we're talking about the uh, Elon Musk episode of Saturday Night Live. And just to give you an idea of what this did, like here's somebody who it was quite unusual for them to be doing this. But just the curiosity factor, I think, of the fact that Elon Musk was hosting Saturday Night Live, uh, it actually brought them their third highest ratings of the season. Uh, The highest was uh, Dave Chappelle's outing as host back on November 7th, which, by the way, that was a great episode. And, of course, the um, the premiere always does really well. That was Chris Rock hosting the premiere back on October 3rd. So, yeah, this one actually did very well in terms of ratings. We've got Raji back now. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, it just knocked it out of the park for ratings. And it also made me wonder if Elon Musk might take this as a signal to jump into the uh, entertainment industry a little bit more. Would we ever see him act in a role? I mean, does he have time? He, he definitely doesn't have a time. I don't know how he pulled this off, to be quite frank. I don't know either, um, but he was in Iron Man 2. Remember, he, he briefly had a bit of a cameo in Iron Man 2 when Tony Stark chatted with him at some place. Oh, true, true. So hopefully this is a sign of more to come. <laughs> yeah, I guess we could say that too. Uh, interesting. Okay, I'm curious to see how, because like, there's a whole legion of like these Elon Musk super fans out there. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm curious to know what their take of all this has been. Yeah, there has been a little bit of a takedown of Elon Musk since uh, the whole Dogecoin thing. Um, so even some of his super fans have turned on him saying, like, are we really uh, are we really worshipping this guy in the way that we should be? Does he have too much power? So, I mean, all, all great figures in society always end up falling a little bit, don't they? Well, yeah, but the thing is, he told them. 
he told them himself. Yeah. He just says things sometimes because that's the way his brain works. So I don't know if they're thinking that he has some big calculated plan for the things that he says and does. I think he pretty much told you straight up, he does not. He just sometimes just says whatever comes into his head. Yeah, and we're all waiting, bated breath, following his tweets <laughs> yeah, for, exactly. for where we should put our money. Yeah, maybe not such a great idea all the time. Uh, thanks for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. That's Raji Sohal uh, jumping in to talk about Elon Musk hosting Saturday Night Live on Saturday night. And yeah, the, I guess for a lot of people, the financial part of it is that that Dogecoin, as Raji mentioned, the price dropped like 20% uh, at least after the episode was over because as a joke, he admitted during Weekend Update, yeah, it's a hustle. Uh, of course it was, right? Like not everything he's doing has some grand financial master plan. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, here in Metro Vancouver, you get all types of cuisine, right? We are a fantastic food mecca. Lots of vegetarian options, lots of vegan options, lots of anything, actually. But it is interesting to see this argument in in other places. For instance, the cooking website Epicurious. I mean, that's a huge website. I check it out all the time. It recently said they're not going to post any new beef recipes out of concern, they said, for the damage that rearing cattle causes to the environment on an industrial scale. They're talking about industrial cattle farms, right? The big ones. And now all these headlines because one of New York's top fine dining restaurants is deciding that when they reopen, they're going to go vegan. Our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now to talk more about this whole movement that's going on. Raji, uh, th- I'm, I'm not surprised because this seems to me like a, a normal thing in Vancouver. Yeah, it is normal in Vancouver, but it could also be more popular. It could be a bigger thing. I talked to um, a, a guy here, a chef at one of Vancouver's higher-end vegetarian restaurants. It's called The Acorn, and asked him to comment on what's happening in New York. Uh, this big restaurant, 11 Madison, is moving to to vegan. And Devin Latte told me that he's in favor of it, but starts with commenting on their former principal dish, which is foie gras, which for the uninitiated is the liver of ducks that are force fed. It's delicious, unfortunately, but it is not the right thing to eat as human. It is not, it it can't be. And, And so that's why I think specifically what he's referencing is the fact that he did not feel comfortable going back to the same parameters of the menu that he was before and he no longer because of the pandemic realizes he no longer cares if he maybe has a little lighter or less traffic because he's not serving meat or fish the real surprise for me is the fact that they went full-on vegan and didn't just stop at vegetarian it's super drama and so that's my next thing is how much of a publicity stunt is it right um, and, and who knows, uh, but if, if it's not, it was the best mistake because it's just blowing up and people care. That's really interesting. So that's the chef of the acorn, which is a very well-known vegetarian restaurant here in Vancouver, talking about, uh, the restaurant 11 Madison, one of the best restaurants in New York city has said when they reopen, they are going to go vegan. Now, Raji, I find it interesting. He's talking about foie gras because immediately, you know, Anthony Bourdain popped in my head who oh, yeah. he didn't care anything about 
how everything, how it was made or, you know, whether they were force fed or whatever, he just knew it was delicious and he liked it. And that was right. such, even, you know, years ago when he first started talking about, even then people were kind of uncomfortable with that. Yeah. And well, uh, Devin Latte, he actually is very familiar with the culture of foie gras because he was in Montreal as a chef at many restaurants there and came up as a cook there as well. So he has a lot of experience with cleaning fish entirely with, uh, you know, cleaning large animals, mammals. Um, he's got lots of experience in that in that world. And now he's, of course, working at the Acorn. He said that going plant based, it's more than a trend now that it is the direction of the culinary world. It's, the city's ready for more, for sure. I mean, we're, we're, we're so busy at the restaurant half the time. We have a hour and a half, two hour wait list for the night. And then so pe- people don't get it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, we had some uh, friends that I had to entertain who visited us last summer when things were more open. And they are vegan. So I had to find a place to take them. No shortage. And they were amazed, you know, when mm-hmm. they said, is this the only place? I think we went to meet on Maine and they were like, is this the only place? I said, no, there's a whole bunch of these places. <laughs> like it was not that hard for me to find this. Uh, I think there's quite a lot of demand. Yeah, Chef Latte thinks that there is demand in Vancouver and ever-growing, but 2020 Vancouver Chef of the Year, Andrea Carlson of Burdock & Co. doesn't agree. And she says the biggest barrier for restaurant owners is this demand issue, which comes down to customers' perception of the value of meat versus veggies. This past couple of weeks, we've included asparagus from a local farm that we pay $7.50 a pound for. If we're including that in a dish, we pay seven fifty a pound. So that's just what it costs. We we accept we accept that. We understand that that's the way that the small scale organic uh, market farm works. But as a consequence, those vegetables can be even more expensive than the meats. You know, so there's this strange kind of dichotomy and weirdness in the food system and people's perception of value. So meats are just they've always been valued as being the most expensive and the highest value, you know, vegetables are vegetables are down here. So when you come to this kind of a restaurant and people supporting the food system uh, of small scale organic, you know, your, your asparagus is priced higher than the chicken that someone else buys in a supermarket. So it's difficult for them to kind of wrap their head around it. I can see that. I mean, Andrea Carlson has been doing this for a long time and she has been very creative. It takes a lot of skill and prep. Yeah, and she she loves that you have to be really creative with uh, vegetables. And if you're foraging for things like mushrooms and whatnot, there's a level of expertise that has to go into that as a chef that you don't necessarily have to have with something like like a steak or other kinds of meat. Um, chef Devin Latte at Acorn says that he sees a lot of pressure on the restaurant industry to reflect customers' changing desires for plant-based. They just want more options. If you don't think that there's an owner of a single restaurant in the city that said, we need vegetarian and vegan, the cooks go, oh, okay. For sure, that's happening all around the city. And you're seeing a lot of those restaurants actually incorporate some vegetarian, vegan food into their menu. The problem is, is it's always an afterthought. They're just doing it because they need to do it because someone's told them they need to do it and they know they have the clientele that are going to come in and one of them is going to be vegetarian. So that unfortunately means that it's not good, which then pushes those people back and creates the higher demand for the actual good places that are focused on it. 
that's what's so nice about having restaurants that are focused on it. Usually they don't mess it up. I like the way he put the usually in there, they don't mess yeah. it up. <laughs> I can see how the pressure would be on the chefs though too, right? Because we as the diners, we have this perception that, oh, if there's meat in it, it's going to cost more. And I, I get like, that's, that's hard because they're putting even more creativity into the dish. But for some reason we think it shouldn't cost as much. Yeah. And when you're looking at, you know, small, sustainable farming for vegetables, that's going to cost. That's just going to cost. And it will cost more than your run-of-the-mill kind of meats that you get at a lot of restaurants. So it will take so much more education for the consumer population to change, to understand that we should be valuing veggies um, better. So I just, uh, I think we're still a ways out from going, you know, a, with a big sea of veganism in, in Vancouver. So uh, like thinking about you then, Raji, and how you and your family eat, like how many times a week do you think you eat meat? So it's interesting. So I was um, hardcore vegetarian for 20 years and vegan for most of that and grew up in a vegetarian household. Um, my mom never ate meat and uh, it wasn't that we were ever missing anything. She knew how to make incredible food, uh, mostly Punjabi food, um, using all vegetables, being totally plant-based. So it's not like I was missing it. I started to eat meat for health reasons so that I could increase my iron and protein more easily. And now I eat it, um, you know, with a little bit of hesitation because I pay so much attention to what's going on with our climate, with climate change and whatnot. So I'm, I'm eating meat about once a week. Right. So that's, I think that would probably be about the same in my house too, once, twice a week. And when I say meat, not red meat, so generally yes. chicken. Um, yeah. But you know what's fascinating to me is that if you do, if you make that choice, and obviously for a lot of people they're like, I'm not giving up beef, fair, but where you buy it from can also have such a huge impact, right? Like there's no shortage of local farms that you can buy your beef from and then at least you can feel better about it. Absolutely. But again, Simi, there's this issue of access because that requires some level of education too. If you want to get the really, I mean, the best meats, the highest quality meats, then you need to know where the farmer's markets. You need to take time out of your schedule to go to those. That's not necessarily convenient. Not everyone has that kind of leisure time and whatnot. A lot of people are working too much to be able to do something like that. And you have to know a little bit more about the farming schedule and when things are in season or not in season and that kind of thing. That's true. I just think in general, we could all use with a bit more education about how our food system, how the modern food system works. That is so true. Listen, Raji, thank you for that discussion. Thanks, Simi. Appreciate that. Yeah. So if you are interested in going more local for your meat, it's you can look it up. I, you have to have a deep freeze, I think, is what it comes down to, because you have to be able to store it if you are going to buy some uh, local meat, because they're not selling it kind of individually, right? You're going to get quite a bit of it, and it'll last you for a long time. But if you want to weigh in on this conversation, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So there's a study out from the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino, and it reveals that Vancouver reported more anti-Asian hate crimes in 2020 than any other city in North America. 
Now, the authors of the report list all sorts of different reasons why Vancouver, you know, was at the top of the list, including the differences in reporting between the U.S. and Canada. But, you know, many people here would say, no, it's not a mistake. They find those numbers to be very believable, including our next guest, Vancouver lawyer Stephen No, who joins us now. Stephen, thanks for being here this morning. Absolutely. I'm excited to be on the call today. Well, you, you sound like you're not surprised at all to hear that Vancouver was number one in this awful category. I'm absolutely not surprised. I grew up in Vancouver. I've been here for most of my life. And just seeing the rise in anti-Asian hate crime in the last few years has been astonishing. It's no longer subtle. It's absolutely overt. And seeing the study come out was not surprising at all. You said last few years. Do, do you think there was there something that happened that made this more prominent? Absolutely. I think COVID definitely was a spark to it. I mean, it's been building for a while with the real estate prices going up, people blaming immigrants from China and Hong Kong. But absolutely with the COVID happening last year, that was the spark that just let things out. And so you've seen this firsthand, I take it? I've seen it firsthand. Last week, not last week, last month, oh gosh, it felt like last week, but last month I was the uh, target of a racial assault. Uh, someone yelled a racial slur at me and then proceeded to throw garbage at my car when I was driving. How do you deal with that, Stephen, when that happens? Like, what, what can you possibly do to react in a situation like that? Honestly, the first reaction was a bit of anger. I was like, you guys messed with the wrong person. I mean, when you see stories of this happening in the news, you hear of it happening to the elderly, to business owners. But I grew up here. I graduated from UBC. I have a law degree at Vancouver. So that's my first reaction. Uh, my second reaction was that of a little bit of shame. I was a little concerned, like, was it the color of my skin? Was it the way I was driving? And it made me realize why a lot of people are a little afraid of speaking out of this and gave me a whole new perspective about what happens behind the scenes. So when you talk to other people, then do they have similar stories? Oh my gosh, once I talked about it on social media, a lot of people messaged me, even my cousin, a couple of weeks before that, he was spat on when he was running. He didn't bother telling anybody until I came out with the story. And a few others as well, too. A friend's mom got punched in the face when she was walking around a park. This is broad daylight. We shouldn't be scared of going for a walk or a run or even a drive in Vancouver. It's such a beautiful city. So is, is that what's happening now? It's a broad daylight. And is it making people afraid? It is making people afraid. My mom works at a dim sum restaurant, and a lot of her guests and clients are scared of going outside. They are really just being cautious walking around, walking in groups. It is it's bizarre, right? It's the beautiful city where the people are afraid yeah. now, especially with the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. Now, are people reporting it, Stephen? Like, do you think there's more cases than even the ones that you're hearing about? There's absolutely way more. I had my own difficulties trying to report it. Now, me being, I know that reporting is important, so I try to report it. To me, I was on the phone line for more than 30 minutes trying to call the BPD. No one picked up. And when I went on the website, all I could found, find were forms in traditional and simplified Chinese. It doesn't make any sense. I speak Chinese, but whether I can read and write is different. Where are the forms in English? Where are the forms in other languages? It seems as if the police is actively deterring people from reporting in this place. Well, that obviously sounds like it spurred you to do something about it. So what have you been doing on this front? Well, the first thing that we posted on social media, that got picked up by other news. And we, even as a community... We drafted translations of these forums in English and other languages like Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese. We sent it to the VPD, but no response. All we heard was, we'll take it into consideration. 
you and I know that that means thanks, but no thanks. I'm not sure why they're stalling at this point. So you're saying that even after all of this, like here's Vancouver's making all these unfortunate headlines for being, you know, the place where these incidents happen. Nothing has changed in terms of the reporting process for this? No, the status quo is clearly not working. In fact, they replied back to me and said, Stephen, you should have called 911. Who would call 911 for a non-emergency? And if you read their comments in the media, they would say, oh, VPD has over officers who speak over 50 languages. Sure, that's great. But if we can't even report and even call the police, what's the point? What's the point of all these talks? What's the point of this media coverage on anti-Asian hate crime when people can't, cannot even access the police and catch the perpetrators? Also, there's a obvious problem here. Yeah, they're always telling us to not call 911 if, unless like, you're absolutely in harm. Yes, I used to work as a paramedic. I, I would never tell anyone to call I one. We have people who have murders, emergency situations. That's not the issue is that people cannot even access basic police services. Cities like, cities like Ottawa and Montreal already have an online reporting form. I just feel like there's a lot of noise right now. The solution is very simple. We just need a way to report things online and access police services. That's all it is. Right. It's just one extra option on the form online. So we're talking about Vancouver here, but obviously is this something that you think could happen in other municipalities as well? It is. And it's absolutely happening everywhere across BC. I have a friend in Squamish. She's, she's afraid of speaking up because it's a smaller city. You have to kind of blend in. Gosh, my mom and dad came here from Vietnam and China for me to start a better life. And it's not for me to stay silent. When I swore an oath to the Law Society, I swore that I would uphold the laws of Canada and protect the rights and freedoms of all Canadians. This is not about me. This is about my friends, my loved ones, your neighbours, our city. I love the city and I just hate to see people scared to walk outside. Yeah, me too. So what can the rest of us do to help here, Stephen? Like, what can we all do? I think there's two things. First of all, I created a website called fixpolicereporting.ca. Again, it's fixpolicereporting.ca. I actually put the translated forms on there as a temporary measure. So if you know anyone who's been hurt, go to our website, use the forms. I copied the VPD formatting exactly. Second of all, I have a button on the website. It takes five seconds to send a support letter. We got to let people know. We got to let the politicians know. We got to let people in power know this is not right. We just got this horrible label by Bloomberg. The status quo is clearly not working. I don't mean to spread hate and fear here, but it's a simple solution. I don't know what all the noise is about. It's an easy solution. Oh, I agree with you on that label. Like when Bloomberg is publishing the story that says Vancouver is the worst, it should make people sit up and take notice, shouldn't it? It is. I think we're putting our heads in the sand here. We're just waiting for it to die away. Everyone, anti-Asian hate crime is not a one-time thing. It's been on the last year and a half. I, I just feel for our residents. I grew up here. I love the city. My purpose is to remove access to reporting police, to the police. That's all it is. Once we get that solved, we could help fix this problem together as a community. Right. But the other thing, too, is, Stephen, and, and I know this, too, is that, you know, when you're not there, like there's a role for everybody else to play when they hear people saying things, right? Yes, there is. So, you know, there's one thing that I learned not too long ago, and I think it's so powerful. When you see something happen, whether it's on a bus or on the streets, there's something called a bystander effect, right? When there's a lot of people, people kind of diffuse responsibility. But the easiest thing you could say is that's not acceptable. And the reason why I bring this up is because last year, something happened to me as well. Similarly, um, I was shouted out for some reason. And then two bystanders automatically talk to the perpetrator and say, hey, that's not appropriate. 
And that really shook that person off a little bit. So it's as simple as that. Again, I always make sure you're safe when you say it, but that's something that we can all do as a community because this is a beautiful place and we got to make it. People shouldn't be afraid of walking out in broad daylight right now. That is so true. But the power of that, of somebody speaking up, right? That bystander is is so important, as you said, because sometimes that's all it takes to make somebody else realize that what they just did was completely unacceptable. Don't do it again. Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, it's, it's, pure, it's like social pressure. It's ingrained in us as humans. We never want to feel outside of the social class here. So saying something like that makes a lot of sense. The second thing I do want to emphasize as well, too, is that when you hear stories like this, whether it's a friend or loved one, by all means, send them a message. Because after I posted it up, all the messages I got was honestly so heartwarming. Because I was, you know, I would say I'm a relatively confident guy, but seeing that happen to me just really shook me up a little bit. Well, yeah. And seeing messages from friends and those who are Asian, non-Asian, all throughout it was really heartwarming to see. So thank you all who sent me messages. It means a lot. Well, of course it would shake somebody up, Stephen, right? Totally understandable. So once again, Stephen, what are those websites that people can check out here if they need them? Yeah, the first the website is fixpolicereporting.ca. Again, fixpolicereporting.ca. On there, you get access to translator forms. You can also send a support letter. I've also put out an open letter to the premier, to the solicitor general, to different MLAs, just to really outline that this is not right. And if anything, this is actually even a violation of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It guarantees equality rights. It guarantees everyone can access protection of the law without discrimination. Right now, by providing forms to just one subset of the population doesn't work. All right. Let's, forms in English. Let's see what we can do. Stephen, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it this morning. Keep us updated on how that goes. That's Vancouver lawyer Stephen No talking about the fact that if you want to report a hate crime, if you are of Asian descent, you want to report a hate crime online, like, you know, to the VPD, it's an incredibly difficult process with forms that are only in, you know, the Chinese language. And it doesn't make any sense if you don't, if you can't read or write that, as Stephen said, he can speak it, but those forms don't help him when he's trying to report uh, a racist incident like that. And it is unfortunate. Vancouver is now this headline. Bloomberg had it splashed all over late last week, right? Vancouver reporting more anti-Asian hate crimes in 2020 than any other city in North America. This is Mornings with Simi. You're hearing the word brazen a lot today and for good reason. That's probably the most accurate word to describe what happened in Metro Vancouver's latest gang-related shooting. This time, a 28-year-old man was shot dead near the International Departures Terminal at Vancouver International Airport on Sunday. They actually exchanged gunfire at one point with police. And uh, Richmond RCMP saying they did close temporarily multiple key routes in and out of Richmond, but were not able to stop the vehicle as it was later found in Surrey. Joining us for more on this now is Kim Boland, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Hi, Kim. Thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. You've been covering this a long time, Kim. We use the word brazen for something like this. How do you describe this latest shooting? Well, brazen is definitely one word. I don't know if it's strong enough. I mean, it's unprecedented to have someone gunned down right on, uh, you know, at the doors of an international airport we're lucky that things are still so shut down from COVID because there likely would have been a lot more people around if they weren't shut down. So it is really shocking. And not just the way the shooting unfolded, the death of this fairly well-known gangster, but afterwards, you know, police trying to intercept the vehicle 
and the suspect or suspect shooting at a police officer in a car. You know, again, a sunny Sunday afternoon. There was lots of traffic around, and fortunately, no one else was hurt. Why the airport? I know you've done some reporting on this in your Vancouver Sun story this morning, but why the airport? Well, we still don't know for sure why Mr. Graywall, the man gunned down, was at the airport. Uh, Police are looking into that. Uh, He might have been meeting someone, dropping someone off, trying to go somewhere. We don't know that yet for sure. However, from talking to people in the criminal underworld who are contacts of mine, airports are sometimes meeting places because they are fairly secure. You know, no one usually would try to double-cross you at an airport because there there are security cameras. So sometimes people involved in gangs or in organized crime groups look for places that they feel are secure if they're going to meet someone to talk about something. So I don't know if that's the case here, but that has been the case previously. We had at that airport in 2015 a high-profile Hells Angel who was having a meeting with someone, was the target of an attempted assassination as well. The gun jammed and he survived. Wow. Okay. You mentioned this person is known. Who was this person that was targeted yesterday? His name is uh, Carmen Graywall. He's uh, associated to the United Nations gang. I feel recall back in 2015, uh, Surya RCMP put out a number of photos and names of young men that had been shot at who were refusing to cooperate with police in any of those shooting investigations. It was a public safety concern back then, as this certainly is now. And they were saying things to the police like, oh, the bullets fell from the sky and being quite cheeky and obnoxious about, you know, the fact that there were shootings going on and they were being targeted. So he was one of those then very young men. And now six years later, uh, he's been murdered. This one did, does feel different, Kim. Actually, the last couple of weeks seems to feel different. Do you think this, is it time for the police to change what they're doing or is there discussion about the police somehow changing what they're doing? Well, uh, the chief superintendent of Richmond RCMP, who spoke to us outside the airport quite late last night, said exactly that, that they have to change their strategies. Uh, they have to do whatever they can to intercept uh, these people before they carry out these acts of violence. But, you know, there are a lot of restrictions on police. They can't randomly stop people. Uh, you know, they, they are lots of charter issues that have come out in court over the years. So, you know, they have to definitely investigate thoroughly, try to get charges laid as soon as possible in these cases. But sometimes it's very challenging to prevent this kind of violence before it occurs. Right. And what is happening here? What kind of battle is going on between these gangs? What are they fighting for? A number of things. Uh, Sometimes the violence is related to a personal dispute that one gang member may have with someone in a rival gang. Remember that sometimes people who are rivals today were formerly associates and on the same side. So they carry a lot of personal baggage with them uh, when they switch, but most of it's related to drug lines. Drug lines are very lucrative across the region And if one gang wants to move in or take over territory in one municipality, they may have to, you know, take someone out or, you know, commit an act of violence like this to secure that lucrative drug line. So that's part of it as well. Um, But definitely there's a lot of history between some of these gangs. Uh, You know, in a story I wrote last week, uh, before we got to this point, you know, uh, had people saying that some of these hits can be tracked back to disputes that are over a decade old. 
Others are young guys, uh, very new on the scene, if you will, maybe trying to make a name for themselves. That's crazy that that it could go on like from 10 years ago and they're still trying to settle scores. It is crazy. It's totally crazy. And it's, it's honestly like they're living in a parallel world that we're not a part of or connected to because, you know, who in their right mind, criminal or non-criminal, would think that was a good thing to go to an international airport with all the security around, with, you know, police on the scene any time of the day or night and, and do a brazen shooting like that. Right. And we, are, of course, are talking about the airport one, but then there was one in Burnaby, too, on Saturday, was there not? Yeah, there was, and just just chilling. The other thing that is new right now, so many people have cameras, like it's not just cell phone cameras anymore, the dash cam video that basically captured that shooting Saturday yeah. that was circulating around. It's just chilling, absolutely chilling. And, you know, that aids police, obviously, when it comes to putting together, uh, you know, a successful investigation and getting charges laid. Um, but, you know, it's also disturbing to police that so much information is circulating so quickly after an event because it does heat things up even more. I would imagine chilling is a good way to put it. Kim, thanks again for being with us. Anytime. Appreciate that. Kim Bowling, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Check her out online, vancouversun.com, uh, for the latest on this situation. It is unprecedented, as Kim said, brazen, chilling, just take your pick. Uh, but the question is, what is going to be done about it? We'll be hearing more about that in the news coming up. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you have life insurance? I mean, a lot of people actually don't. Maybe you've had problems getting it. It can be frustrating. If you've had any kind of a health issue in the past, you might be automatically denied, even if you want to get health insurance. This is a process that our next guest is very familiar with, but he finally persevered and got it. Guy Felicella joins us now. He's a harm reduction advocate, and he's talking about his experience with life insurance. Good morning, Guy. Uh, good morning, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here because I think I feel like with life insurance, this is something that a lot of people take for granted. So tell us what happened when you first tried to get some. Well, I mean, you know, if anything were to happen to myself or my wife with three kids and a mortgage, uh, um, you know, you don't want to leave that pressure on somebody. So, you know, talking to one of our financial advisors, they, they said, you know, life insurance is a, is a good way of protecting not only each other, but also your, your kids. And uh, so we went to apply for the process and, uh, and my wife was approved pretty much. She had a 45 minute, phone call with the insurance company and then um, mine they called me and it turned into pretty much over an hour conversation but um, they were specifically targeting my past criminal history and uh, my drug use even though um, my medical practitioner had given me a complete clear bill of health and then they followed up with three more um phone calls that ran about 45 minutes each just digging into my past history but most basically just the the drug use if i'm seeing counseling now very stigmatizing questions uh and then um denied me on the basis of my criminal past history and my past drug use not on where i was today in my life 
even though your doctor had given you the clean bill of health, even though you've turned everything around, they're still going to hold you to whatever it is that you were doing years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That, and those are the two, the exact two basis of why they, they didn't give any other reasons. It was those two specific reasons. And so it's very, very defeating, obviously. Um, and, and, you know, you feel discriminated against, you've done everything, you know, possibly right. You can do in your life. Um, you know, and, and insurance companies are, I guess, you know, they, they're trying to, they probably don't want to pay out anybody. Um, so they, you know, they look for, I mean, I'm just as healthy as, as pretty much any other, um, 50 year old that's out there now. Um, and still being denied was, I mean, it was, it was frustrating. So what did you do? Well, I mean, we, you know, people were shocked and outraged um, that those were the basis that I was denied. And um, our family friend, who's an advisor, said, hey, let's let's apply again. And, and we did apply again. And um, um, lo and behold, uh, you know, there was no phone call with major stigmatizing questions. They wanted to know. Basically, uh, my health practitioner's comments, also um, past history, uh, you know, and then um, looked into my health issues and uh, found that there was none and, and I got approved. And okay. so uh, that was extremely, extremely an exciting day. Cause, yeah, I'll bet. But I guess yeah. it asks the question then, Guy, like, where is the incentive for people, right? Like, you fight so hard to you know get yourself healthy again and it's like they're what they're still going to make you relive what happened in the past you know i think it's rooted in our systems our laws our policies that discriminate against people um whether you're a substance user or person um with underlying health conditions in the past or whether you're indigenous or black i think just the way things go um in our society is 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 very, very uh, stigmatizing. And then even when you turn yourself, your life around, or whether you're a person that struggled with substances and changed everything and, you know, have a career job and, you know, have a family and live your life very healthy, um, they still pull you back into uh, that past. And it's, it's like, at what point is us as a society have to decide to say, you know what, listen, um, we can't judge somebody on their past. Really, we have to uh, look at what they're doing today. And if they're healthy, then they should be approved. Now, let me ask you, since you went public with this, I know you've been discussing this on social media. What kind of reaction have you gotten? I'm sure you've heard from other people who had a similar situation. Oh, so many people. Just very frustrating. Uh, you know, and, and it doesn't give people any hope either um, as well, too. You're trying to protect your family, your kids. Uh, you know, just in case anything happens, it's not like, you know, you're, um, <clears throat> there was a, there was a lot of people that reached out by email and there was actually a lot of people that worked out, uh, work, reached out from other, uh, insurance companies that said, Hey, um, that's wrong that that company discriminated against you like that. Listen, you can try again and let me know if you need my help. I'll, I'll do anything I can to help you. And, and lo and behold, we just, you know, went with another company that, that, that approved it and didn't right. look at, you know, so it was rewarding. But not everybody, I guess, guy would get that kind of advice, right? Some people might get the no and then that's it. And then they just feel very discouraged. 
Yeah, totally. And I and I, I think it goes a, a lot as our as we have to really look at our, our laws and our policies that are in place and and are are they really benefiting people or are they really benefiting the company? I mean, really, like insurance companies should be like saying, Okay, like yeah, we get it. We we wanna protect people too. So um, there's got to be some changes that, that need to happen and not just there, like throughout our society. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just so tough for people to, to get any hope. And especially in, you know, when everybody's looking at protecting their health, um, you know, that should be like priority number one, because without that protection, um, what do you really have? So with everything you've learned now going through this process, what maybe you could give people some advice here. So what are insurance companies allowed to deny you on and what are they not allowed to deny you on? Well, they shouldn't deny you on your criminal history, your past or your drug use. Um, that's for sure. They, they really need to look at what you're doing today, how long have you been out? Like, like for me, not using any drugs in eight years, they don't, they're not supposed to look back past uh, a certain amount. I think it was five years that they weren't supposed to look back, but they started digging into stuff from the nineties. And I was just like, it just turned into, um, unraveling of, of my whole life, which was, you know, very, it's very uncomfortable. And especially to somebody that, doesn't isn't outspoken about their past or maybe hasn't dealt with a lot of the trauma from their past, it, it would be very challenging for them to get through that call. Um, so you just go back and, you know, talk about basically how healthy you are today, your pr- practitioner's uh, letter. Um, and then don't go, don't go dig into stuff that happened like 20 years ago, because once they, once they get a line on that, they just don't seem to look past that at all. No, that is so true. Listen, guy, thanks for telling your story with us this morning. Uh, thanks for having me, Sammy. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That's Guy Felicelli. He's a harm reduction advocate. You've heard him in the media many, many times, and he often tells a story about how he overcame drug addiction years ago. But this story is a little bit different because we hope that that provides some uh, inspiration for people out there who might be discouraged by what happened you know, to them, maybe similar to what happened to Guy. As he applied for life insurance, he figured, you know, at this age now, he's been clean for almost a decade, time to you know get some life insurance, and he was denied because they went way back into his history and looked at all these health issues from a long time ago and he persevered kept doing it kept trying found a place got his life insurance and i can imagine how many people must be discouraged with the initial no because of some health and we're not talking just addiction here right life insurance companies do this for all sorts of stuff any small thing that you had years ago they find a reason to deny you and really they can't and shouldn't be doing that